tuning in to our podcast, Salt and Light, where we'll cover foundational principles for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Enjoy this episode with ears to hear and hearts that listen. So let's go check the facts with your host, also known as my dad, Casey Harrison. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Salt and Light Assembly, Building Relational Disciples. This is a part of the 513 Project, where we expose genetically altered Christianity and we replace it with a firm foundation for a relationship with God. Now, if you've been tuning in for the past few weeks, we've been going through the book of Matthew, specifically in the genealogy of Jesus, or what I call the origin story of Christ. Last week was a pretty awesome week. I've got to say, God blew my mind with Matthew 1.8, especially lining it up to where it landed on Easter weekend. That was pretty incredible to me. Well, we're going to continue on this week with Matthew chapter 1, verse 9. So remember, we're in the genealogy of Jesus, so let's dive right into the scripture today. Matthew 1, 9. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Asa, and Asa, the father of Hezekiah. Now, this is a pretty cool scripture. So let's dive into the names of these people that we see in the scripture. Four names. Uzziah, Jotham, Asa and Hezekiah. The meaning of Uzziah. The strength of Jehovah. Jotham. Jehovah is upright. Ahaz. The possessor. Hezekiah. The might of Jehovah. When you put the meanings of these names together, this is what you get. Through the strength of Jehovah, Jesus is upright. Meaning Jesus is in right standing. Jesus is the possessor through the might of Jehovah. So you might be asking yourself, what does this have to do with me and my life today? It's pretty simple. Last week, God told us about the crucifixion through the genealogy of Jesus over 150 years before Isaiah ever walked the earth. This week, God is giving us a key insight to what a relationship with Jesus really looks like. As of the release of this episode, April 9th, 2021. Last weekend would have been one of the busiest days that any church has throughout the year. Easter Sunday. And I say it's one of the busiest days because it's one of two times a year where many people that wouldn't even darken the doors of a church say yes to their mama and go to church with their mama. And those two times a year is Easter and Christmas. The people that go to church on Easter and Christmas, I lovingly refer to them as Christers or Creaster Christians. And just this past weekend, many of those Creasters came to the realization that Jesus did, in fact, die on a cross in our place, rose from the grave, and is alive and well. It's like a light bulb went off in their minds. You might be one of them listening to this podcast right now. For others, it's probably the tenth or more times that they've heard it and they've had that feeling on the inside of the Holy Spirit pulling them unto salvation. No matter which category you fall into, you made a decision to follow Christ and accept Him as Lord and Savior of your life. You said a prayer that a lot of churches refer to as the sinner's prayer. And you made that commitment. The issue I have with the sinner's prayer is it's not the prayer that saves you. In fact, I once heard that Billy Graham was quoted saying, that he would be happy if 5% of the people that claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior at one of his rallies 
actually makes it into heaven. Now take that with a grain of salt because I've tried to verify that quote and I couldn't find it anywhere. And the more I thought about that quote, the more it really became a concern of mine for people that I know. The reason it became a concern is because of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter that gate are many. For the narrow gate and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. See, unfortunately today, many churches, at least Western civilization churches, I would say, have focused for way too long on the prayer of salvation. This has become a genetically altered Christianity core belief. Because if you ask many people, do you know Jesus? They'll point back to a time and say, yeah, I said this prayer there. I said the sinner's prayer in church camp. I said the sinner's prayer in Sunday school. Many people believe that just because they've said a prayer, that they're good. As if it was a magical prayer. But scripture says you'll know them from their fruit, which means after you accept Jesus, things are going to change because you have a desire to change. So if you're good just because you said a magical prayer, then please explain how there's no change in your life to look more like Christ. The more I study scripture, the more I realize that it's not about the profession of faith through a prayer. And that's why I believe that a lot of people that have said the quote-unquote sinner's prayer are still lost. Now, it's not my place to judge them, but I can judge the fruit of their actions. And if you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, I want you to understand that I'm not saying all of this to get you to doubt your salvation. I am saying all of this to give you the information so that you can go back in your alone time and examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Just like 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us to do. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And if we're really honest with ourselves and really test ourselves, I mean really get down in the nitty gritty and really get honest. Did that quote unquote prayer spark a desire for you to get to know the person of Jesus Christ? Or did that quote unquote prayer make you feel good in the moment? That's the test. Let me give you an example. My wife's name is Emily. Okay? Let's say we started to date and got to know each other. I chose to love her. She chose to love me. And I asked her to marry me. And then let's say she agreed to marry me. Great! I go around telling all of my family and all of my friends she said yes. It's posted on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Okay, not Instagram and Snapchat. I don't have those. But... She said yes, so I'm super excited. Then the day of the wedding comes around, and I don't show up. Now, just because I didn't show up doesn't mean that I'm not in a relationship with her anymore, does it? I mean, I didn't show up to our wedding day, so that doesn't mean that I'm not committed to her, does it? Any woman that's ever been stood up would slap me for saying something stupid like that. Of course it means I'm not committed to her. Of course it means I'm not in a relationship with her. I stood her up at the altar. There's no way that I could consider myself to still be in a relationship with her. Because I forfeited that possibility for a good relationship, for a good marriage, by not showing up on the wedding day. 
Now let facts be facts. I did ask Emily to marry me. She did say yes, and I did show up. But in many ways, isn't that how people in the church today treat God? By making the commitment through the sinner's prayer, but then never following through with the relationship opportunity? Think about it. Salvation isn't about the words you say. It's about the follow-through. And that follow-through will create change. How do I know this? Simple. When I married Emily, I thought I only had two emotions, happy and angry. Through our relationship and through our conversations that we had, I come to realize I've got all the emotions. Sadness, anxiety. But I never knew how to recognize it until I started having conversations with my wife, the person I'm in relationship with. And as we had conversations, it exposed something inside of me that needed to change in order for me to better myself. I need to actually learn what this sadness is and how to deal with it and how to use it to build up myself and to build up others. How to face confrontation without letting it jump all the way over to angry. These are areas that I could improve on that became exposed through our relationship and conversation. That's the way it's supposed to be with us and Jesus. The more we're in relationship, the more we're in conversation, the more issues of our own get exposed. And if we want to become the best version of ourselves like Jesus wants us to be, then we'll start to work on it to see how we can actually better ourselves through what Christ is telling us to do. And then as we better ourselves, our relationship with Jesus will get even better. Jesus wants that kind of a true relationship. And marriage is the best example of a committed relationship. That's why I used it earlier. That's why the Bible uses it as a way to describe the kind of relationship that God wants with us. But when I say marriage, I'm not talking about the Americanized Western culture type marriage. The best example of a committed relationship is the type of marriage that the Hebrew culture had. Hands down. So I've got a question for you. Do you even know what that kind of a marriage looks like? If not, let me describe it to you. A man sees a woman. He wants that woman to become his bride. So he finds the father of that woman and starts to negotiate a contract with the father of the woman that would become his bride. Once the father and that potential groom come to an agreement through the negotiations, the groom pays the father and then leaves, heads back to his father's house. And he builds a room onto his father's house. Now this takes time. They didn't have power tools like we have today. And once this groom is done building a room onto the house for him and his wife, then the father of the groom comes in to inspect the room to see if it's suitable enough for the bride. And once the groom gets the thumbs up, you're good. It's off to wherever that woman lives to pick her up. No announcement. No messenger going ahead saying, hey, be ready, I'll be there soon. No, none of that. He just goes over to her hometown, collects her, and brings her back to that house. It's pretty different than what we call marriage over here in America, right? That's the concept of marriage that the Hebrew people had. So to Jesus, that's the way it was done. Many people today would say that's old-fashioned. I don't care. I'm glad Jesus is old-fashioned. Because he's the one that negotiated the price for you and me with a father God. 
the creator of all things. Then Jesus paid that price through his blood on a cross, dying, and then being raised from the grave three days later, then ascending to his Father to prepare a place for us. I mean, that's what Jesus told his disciples. I have to go away in order to prepare a place. Once the Father says, hey, we're good, come on back, that means Jesus is coming back. And he's going to collect all of his bride. Unannounced, he's going to come get them. Whether you believe that or not, I don't care. That's what he said. Basically, when you said that sinner's prayer and you meant it from the bottom of your heart, that was the equivalent of you saying, I do, to Jesus on wedding day. It's that simple. The sinner's prayer is the moment you married Jesus. The negotiation was completed and the price was paid over 2,000 years ago. In the Hebrew culture, once the negotiation was finished and the price was paid, at that moment, the bride belonged to the groom. She became his possession. In Casey, how does that tie back into the scripture we're talking about today? Read it again and put the names together. Matthew 1.9 Uzziah, Jotham, Asa, Hezekiah The strength of Jehovah stood Jesus upright and now he has become the possessor of you through the might of Jehovah. We just celebrated Easter weekend. That's the event where Jesus paid the price for us to become his bride. Christers and Christians alike heard the story of the cross. And many people either received Jesus as their Lord and Savior and said the sinner's prayer or recommitted their lives to Jesus, not knowing what that actually meant. This week, God's telling us exactly what that means. That means you're in a committed relationship with Jesus. If you truly made Him Lord of your life, then Jesus is your possessor. You are His property. And not because of anything that you did, but through the might of Jehovah Himself. Now, I know that there's this doctrine and this belief that God chooses who and who will not go to heaven. According to Scripture, that's a false doctrine across the board. Because I don't want you to get it twisted. We all get a choice. Even in the Hebrew culture, the bride had a choice. In that culture, that woman could look at the father and say, look, that price isn't good enough. You need to renegotiate. Or she could make the choice herself to go and sleep with another man, which would devalue her in the eyes of her prospective groom. She had choice. And if you don't think that was a possibility, then you need to go back and read the story of Joseph and Mary. Because Joseph had negotiated a contract with the father of Mary. Now he was going to be coming back for his bride. But then she shows up pregnant. And on top of that, she claims it's God's kid. Go back and read that story. Joseph was conflicted. He was contemplating getting out of that contract because he had every right. For all he knew, she cheated on him. And now she's trying to use God as an excuse. Don't take my word for it. Check out Matthew 119. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And you don't have to worry. We're going to get into all these scriptures in future episodes. 
As for now, just know that if you keep reading past this verse, you'll see where an angel comes and confirms to Joseph Mary's story. And that's when Joseph chooses to go through with the marriage. Like, huh, she wasn't lying. It is God's kid. What it boils down to is just because Jesus paid the price for you to be his bride doesn't mean that takes your choice out of the mix. That's one of the most beautiful aspects of God's love. God's going to honor whichever choice you make. He's a just being. He's perfect. He's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on you. And still know this, that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, then you belong to him. You are his possession, which is good. Because in the same way that if anyone ever tried to mess with my wife, they'd have to deal with me first. Come against me all you want. But the minute you come against my wife, we got problems. And I will protect her. She made a commitment to me. I made a commitment to her. And I'm going to see it through till death do us part. Jesus said a very similar thing in scripture. He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful and just to complete it in the end. In fact, God says, put on the whole armor of Christ and then stand. He doesn't say fight. Jesus is taking care of that. You belong to him. He is your protector. That's the great news about it. Because believe me, there's going to be a lot of situations and many times where people are going to talk bad about you because you said you believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, you're going to become the butt of their jokes. You're going to get cussed out. You're going to get berated. You're going to lose some friends. You might even lose some family. It's that simple. On top of that, you're even going to have your own brain to deal with. Because you're used to doing things in a much different way. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more inside of you is going to get exposed. And you're going to have to make a choice whether or not to deal with that stuff. Dealing with it means you get closer to Jesus. There are going to be times in your life where it's going to suck. That's just facts. That's the whole point of picking up your cross and following him. Things in this life will suck. Jesus even said, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. And the parts that suck about life are going to suck even more being a follower of Christ. It's that simple. But it's better than burning in hell. Besides, you get that peace we talked about a few weeks back that surpasses all understanding. So the stuff that used to hurt like hell feels like a bee sting now because you've got Jesus protecting you because you belong to him. Through the strength of Jehovah, Jesus stands upright and he is the possessor of you by the might of Jehovah. All right, everybody. That's all the time we've got for this week. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Salt and Light Assembly. If you liked this episode, share it with somebody. Click the like button. Leave a comment down below. If you have questions or concerns, you can leave that in the comments or you can email it to us at office.saltandlight at gmail.com. And that's office.saltandlight at gmail.com. If God's laid it on your heart to support this ministry, feel free to click the heart icon at the top of the podcast page. We've also got a Venmo account linked up at SNL513. The website's coming soon, and so is some video on YouTube. 
And I'm really looking forward to next week, so be sure to come back. Because next week we're going to learn where God prophesied that you're going to get tempted to walk away from Jesus. It's going to be good. So until then, be bold, be strong, and be blessed.